1: plushcare.com slash weight loss
2: hello you're listening to bfn this is the podcast about infertility
3: ivf and the trials of trying for a baby i'm gabby and i'm emma and we're both card carrying members of the infertility club still a little bit buzzing actually from our lovely Instagram live. Oh my god
2: yeah Yeah, we've had a good weekend haven't we?
3: We've had a lovely weekend so today the day is Saturday and we did an Instagram live last night to celebrate our big 10k. Yep. Um, It's sad that we derive so much self-worth from the number of followers that we have on Instagram but there you go. (sighs) But it means we can swipe up on our Instagram stories
2: and link to articles. It's life-changing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, after after some pushing from, from us, yeah. um, we hit the 10K mark on Friday, which yeah. was great. And it's wonderful. Um, I feel wonderful it about it. it. It is wonderful. We- and... Um, yeah, we made a small announcement on the on the Instagram Live, which we, we may did. as well talk about now as well a little bit, and then we'll never talk about it again. Yeah. Um, we promise.
3: We have joined the YouTube. The YouTube.
2: Yes, we have created Big Fat Positive, um, which is basically us talking about parenting after infertility on yes, YouTube. Yes, it is.
3: Yes. Um, that's... The reason we started it was because we wanted Big Fat Negative to stay a completely safe space that n- that like does never talks about babies or or anything like that. But we mm. have had a lot of our listeners say, "What happened next? Can you tell us about the rest of your journey?" Um, yeah. So we decided to do that, and you can find it on YouTube at Big Fat Positive. Mm-hmm. and you can find our we've got started in instagram as well big fat positive channel because some art has yes. stolen big fat positive already what um, a dick <laughs> who do they think they are and um and we'll never talk about it again
2: yes um so go and follow us on instagram um or just subscribe to our new channel if that is of interest if it is not of interest that is completely acceptable and we promise that's the last time we'll mention it
3: yeah um on to this week's show let's this week we are talking to Anna German who oh we just had such a nice chat with so she's an illustrator um and her kind of big well the big thing that we talked about was a book that she created which is like it's kind of like a children's pop-up book Mm -hmm. and it's called so when are you gonna have kids yeah and
2: it's just great it is great. We're going to play a little bit of audio of her reading the book before yeah. we do the interview, which is exciting for everyone, isn't it?
3: Yeah, and it actually made me cry the first time I heard it, even though yes. I would read the book before. So that's cool. If you, well, we just we had a really nice chat with her about like deriving creativity from infertility. So you know, taking the shit and making it into something beautiful. Well, we, um, we came
2: across her at um, the Fertility Fest, didn't we? Yeah, the we did. Brilliant Fertility Fest. Yeah. Um, which is actually supposed to be this weekend, I think, if it wasn't cancelled by COVID. <sighs> um, so yeah, so that's quite nice um, yeah. looping back there.
3: If you want to find out more about her, um, you can go to her website. It is fraudeutsch.com, as in Mrs german.com, but in German. It's clever the way she did that. I think it's very clever, yeah. Um also mm. it allows me to practice my German accent, Frau Deutsch. Oh mate, how is it? Do it again. Frau Deutsch. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Sehr gut. Sehr um or you girl. can follow her on Frau Deutsch on Instagram. Excellent. Um just because it's another classic lockdown interview, we've got a helicopter joining us halfway through. No way. Yeah. I Didn't even remember that. It's very exciting.
2: That is exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've also obviously got Liz and Nick. Oh my God. Um, and uh, they have been talking to Becky at Defining Mum, who obviously is a mum of three donor-conceived children.
3: Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, they're just kind of coming to terms with their decision, aren't they? Mm,
2: yeah, absolutely. And,
3: and then and, um, Professor Tim is talking about sleep. Oh, and its sleep. effect on fertility. Ah. Oh. It's my favourite thing in the whole world. I love it. Yes, it is. It's fantastic. But some I still people struggle it. to sleep. Some people struggle to sleep. Not me. Not me either. <laughs> um, and then before we go, I just wanted to read out this this letter that we got from one of our listeners. Her name is Susan Georgie Cole. She is a biochemist. And mm. she has sent us a very timely email Um. Which basically, she said that she was reading. It starts with the egg, which is a book mm. loads of our mm-hmm. listeners have read. Mm-hmm. And halfway through, it's talking about BPAs, and mm-hmm. it says that you shouldn't use hand sanitizers. Fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, "I'm a little bit suspicious about this." Also, what the fuck? Everyone's using hand sanitizers. Exactly. At the so she she says, "I've had a look into this and done some reading." As we know, BPA is a compound that's used to make certain types of plastic, and as a result, it can be found in things like Tupperware and baby bottles. It's very small and can be absorbed by the body, where the concern is that it can mimic hormones like oestrogen, thus disrupting natural processes. Recently, there's been a move away from using BPAs due to this danger. Hand sanitizers, on the other hand, are made using a combination of alcohols, isopropyl or ethanol, as well as things like glycerol and aloe extract. The alcohols are the most important ingredients of the gel, as they kill viruses and bacteria. The WHO, that's the World Health Organization, recommends at least 60% alcohol content for this reason. The glycarol, glycerol, glycarol, glycerol, 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 softer. Think, yeah. And aloe extracts are added to make yeah. the gel thicker, to balance the pH of the gel, and as skin protection, because the a- alcohols tend to strip away some of our skin's nice oily protective barrier. No shit. So she, she says... to take my hands. Yeah, I know, isn't it? Oh, I've got like wizened husks. The claim that sanitizers contain BPA is bizarre, as there is no reason for it to be there. And according to my reading, it isn't, or at least not here in the UK. There have been numerous scientific papers flagging this up as a pervasive myth. I did find one particularly bizarre study which looked at people using copious hand sanitizer and then rubbing receipts on their hands and eating french fries she says she can provide pdfs of all studies if needed receipts are known to contain bpas in small quantities but unless you start licking them i don't think you'll get much exposure the study was was of terrible questionable design and i would recommend ignoring it altogether and again this has been flagged by other scientists for its misleading results she says because we work on covid here in my lab we have a ton of hand sanitizer of various brands. I've checked the ingredient list for all 15 types we have here, and there aren't any BPAs in any of them. To summarize, hand sanitizer gels here in the UK do not contain BPAs. So, no. just if anybody's weighing up whether to increase their exposure to COVID or maybe there's a tiny bit of BPA in your hand sanitizer, her suggestion is. Use the hand sanitizer. Go for the Sani.
2: Go for the Sani. Thank you, Susan. Yeah. That's um, a fantastic email to receive.
3: Well, this is exactly the kind yeah. of factual content that we started BFN for. That's what it's all about. It's what it's all about. <laughs> so, with that, we'll leave you with that. Um, and we will ask you to please follow us on Instagram, get to 11k <laughs> at BigFatNegative. Uh, follow us on facebook big fat negative follow us on twitter at big fat negative or if you'd like to email us you can <gasps> it's big fat negative podcast at gmail.com and in the meantime we'd love it if you rated and reviewed the podcast indeed, indeed. enjoy the show guys enjoy
4: Hello.
5: I mean, what even was that?
4: I don't know, you pause for ages.
5: Well, I was just waiting to see if you do something. Hello. How are you? I'm
4: very well, thank you. How are you?
5: I'm alright. Good. Feels like it's week 475 mm. of lockdown. Indeed. And uh, we're still trapped, but now we can travel five miles from our house. Yay! Which takes me to, well, us to... Don't n- get,
4: you don't go far on the M4. No, you
5: don't. Not at all. So, yeah, it's a bit bloody pointless.
4: Actually, if you go east, I don't think you make it to the M4 in five miles, do you?
5: No. Yeah. No, so we're still trapped in the big city. But we have had quite an exciting week. Have we? Well, I think so. <laughs> I do too. We chatted to uh, what I like to call an Insta-celebrity this week. (laughs) Would you care to uh, elaborate, Mr. F?
4: We spoke to the final mum.
5: We did. We did. We had a lovely little chat with Becky. Poor bugger. We kept her on for like two hours, didn't we? Um, Talking at her, poor thing, and asking lots of questions. But it was really, really useful.
4: It was. It was very nice.
5: And um, she, <clears throat> excuse me, she definitely made me feel like a lot of the things that I was worried about are very standard fears for both somebody who is considering a donor and someone who is um, just generally going through IVF, I think.
4: Yeah, good.
5: Was there anything in particular our chat of our chat that really stood out for you?
4: I don't know, but it kind of got me, I don't know, more excited about the process. Not the process, but the end result. Did it really? Yeah, because you just see the reality of it afterwards.
5: Yeah? Yeah. Oh, that makes me really happy, actually. I wasn't expecting that to be an outcome of our conversation, to be honest.
4: Yeah, I mean, I'm always excited, but it's just when you talk to someone who's living it and has lived it and come out the other end... It's, it's
5: nice. Yeah, it definitely made it a lot more real and you know like I was sort of saying to Becky that um watching her speak about donor so openly and connecting with so many women who are um considering donor eggs as a possibility definitely made me feel um less uncertain about making that decision. Yeah. And I, I say that in that I know that we were unsure about which path to take. Um, but I think what I mean is that donor eggs certainly felt like a less of an alien option. Because there were, I knew so many women who had done it. it wasn't um, a strange thing to do. It wasn't a strange thing to do. Um, so I, I was really grateful to her I am really grateful for her to that actually
4: I don't think it's really any stranger than IVF in general do
5: you not think?
4: not really because she's just using someone else's eggs but the end goal is the same
5: I guess yeah I guess I don't know I just think that if I hadn't known or met or you know, spoken with all these women I may not have um, considered it as an option because it's not something that unless you are in the IVF community, is particularly spoken about. Maybe that's what I mean. Whereas um, adoption is very clearly discussed and, I mean, there's adverts on the radio for it. So it's it's very much in your day-to-day life. You know, even if you haven't had fertility issues, you're aware of adoption. Yeah. Whereas if you hadn't had fertility issues, you maybe wouldn't be aware of... The option yeah, I suppose of using you, a donor.
4: You would people adopt even without fertility issues, whereas I don't think people would necessarily use donor unless they had to.
5: Yeah, and actually, I mean, even more specifically than that, like donor eggs. You know, obviously speaking to Becky, she was saying that she in her you know, when she sort of started her journey, um, she didn't really know anybody who specifically had used donor eggs, whereas I think Maybe donor sperm is a think, bit more common.
4: Yeah, I think if you think donor, you normally think of donor sperm, don't yeah, you?
5: Yeah, yeah, you do. So yes, thank you for normalising the conversation. Yes, that's what I'd like to say.
4: It's like nice to hear the uh, stories about her daughters.
5: Yeah, yeah, it was really lovely, and I think it's very much, you know, and and I, you know, for me, one of the sort of standout things from our chat was that. She felt a lot of what I'm feeling around you know concern and worry, but equally is very um certain and firm that she doesn't want the fact that their donor conceived to rule the girls' lives no, and I really like that,
4: yeah, definitely I mean, I like to think once it's all happened and they're here, why would it yeah be anything you just You've got your family there. I'm sure it would come up in time, and like you won't want to hide it. But I think day to day, I didn't see why it would have to come up.
5: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I've sort of spoken about on here before as well is my is my kind of genuine fear of going through all of this again. And like again, you know, Becky definitely made me feel um that that was quite a normal thing to to consider um but one of the other things that we spoke about and one of the things actually I've chatted with um Gabby and Emma about is this fear of mine around stepping back into the hope zone yeah because you know for us certainly this is now a major change in the way that we've done IVF previously and it's really hard not to feel hopeful and to speak about the possibility of actually a, I didn't even you know a, a positive pregnancy test I guess yeah. or even for us getting a day five embryo or even getting anything to transfer like it mm-hmm. It feels like it's a genuine possibility but equally i feel really foolish for even letting myself get there
4: well becky made the point and i have heard it before is if it doesn't work you're going to be devastated either way so you, whether you were hopeful or you weren't so you might as well be a bit hopeful about it yeah. let yourself be a bit hopeful yeah
5: do you sort of you know f- feel similarly or is you know, is that something that you've kind of thought about? I would, you I, you
4: like, I would like to think like that, but I'm... It is quite hard, I think, still. I know I can see the logic in it. Yeah. But part of me just do not want to... I don't know, are you protecting yourself? And going, oh, I didn't expect that to work anyway. Yeah. Even yeah. The, but saying that even then, you'd still be devastated. Yeah. But Yeah, I, I hope... I hope just try and enjoy the process let's try and enjoy it as much as you can mm. but I don't know
5: I think we're just gonna be on ten hooks the whole time yeah. aren't we yeah, and it was it was interesting because um you know we we kind of delved a bit more into into Becky's story, which you know um I've seen a few webinars and and you know chatted with her a little bit and read some blog posts and stuff um of hers, and it's I think it's different sometimes, like, reading something about somebody and then actually hearing them speak about it because you connect that much more with a person. Yeah. And um, as you say, it was it was really lovely to see the reality of something that might be for us. Um, but equally, you know, we, we chatted around our fears of, well even though we're going into it with this major change, it's still IVF. It's still, even though it's an increased chance of success, it's still that sort of percentage unknown. And yeah. Yeah, it feels very sort of, it feels a bit surreal to be going through it again, I guess, and it feels very nerve-wracking. And
4: I think it's at least we're taking a, a more, I felt less and less optimistic the further we got. Each round, I think, yeah. and this has added maybe a little bit more optimism, yeah, in the process, even if it's just for one round, yeah, yeah,
5: yeah. that's true. I think, like you say, we're going into this in, in quite a different headspace, I think, mm. now, aren't we? I definitely feel like waiting was the right thing to do, yeah, because I feel a bit more robust, robust to sort of deal with it. And I think actually, you know, we we chatted a lot with Becky about the sort of what-ifs from her perspective in terms of, you know, she's actually living it now. Mm. And we are, you know, she answered a lot of my questions around, you know, how do you deal with this? and, And how do you deal with sort of, you know, do you feel like you... Did you feel differently when you were pregnant? Because, you know... It was, you know, it was a it was a, a donor conceived child, and maybe that's a silly question, but you just it's such an unknown entity for us that it just felt really nice to speak to somebody who both understood it, having been in our shoes, yeah, having done own egg IVF, and then, you know, was then on the other side of it.
4: Yeah, I think she made the point. That I think I tried to make t- to you about worrying what the child would look like. Mm. And I think it doesn't really have to look like either of you. You just want to look like your child, really. You just want to look like them. Yeah, doesn't really matter the other way. Yeah, and
5: I guess because you know, like you've said before, we're in a position where we we have all of these options, and we have you know we have all these choices to make that we wouldn't necessarily have if we weren't in this boat. It does make you overthink it a lot and, and think about it quite a bit you know and, and analyze things yeah. that maybe you wouldn't necessarily be analyzing
4: yeah
5: um, you know like Becky was saying that when she first had Mila she was you know worrying about whether or not she was finding parenting difficult because Mila was donor conceived but actually it's because she was a baby she baby and <laughs> babies are hard. But I guess because there's no comparison for her, you know, she doesn't have anything to, you know, to compare it with, it's really hard, it's really easy to sort of pin that issue or concern on the fact that they are donor-conceived children. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I think the overarching point of it and one that we've, you know, said previously is and they're just their own little people and they're not, the donor conception element doesn't really define them um which i think is it's it's really difficult to remember when that is like the, the thing that is such a big yeah um you know it's such a big point for us at the moment but actually like you say if if anything if they come along then it's going to be a really really small footprint on the rest of their life um but, yeah, no, it was really lovely to chat with Becky and definitely alleviated a lot of my fears good around how it was gonna go and i guess i I guess I sort of imagined that you know donor conception would be brought up every single day and it would be a continuous topic of conversation, but
4: I've never felt like 'cause we we had the the we asked the question about who do you tell, how many people you tell. And then there must come a point where, why would you tell anyone else apart after, you've, after the fact? You wouldn't go, this is my daughter. <laughs> By the way, she was donor conceived, because yeah. it just doesn't matter. If what That doesn't add anything.
1: No. In the
4: same way, if you adopted a child, you wouldn't be telling everyone, this is my adopted daughter, this is my adopted son. Yeah, You'd yeah. you just say, this is my son, this is my daughter.
5: Yeah. And I think it was really interesting because... Um, you know, Be- Becky was telling us about a meeting she'd attended and, you know, that, that this lady had a, a son by a donor sperm and, you know, she was very um, sort of militant about making sure that every single one of his teachers knew that he was donor-conceived. Yeah. And I think that really set the tone as to what she didn't want for the girls. She didn't want that definition hanging over their heads.
4: Yeah.
5: Because, like you say, yeah. it's... It's not really relevant to who they are.
4: Unless it's medically pertinent, I don't see the point.
5: No, but I guess, you know, the other point that, that Becky made as well, which I thought was a really good one, is that you don't want them ever to think that it's a secret. No. You want to make sure that they can speak with anybody within your inner circle, be that family or friends, and everybody is aware of it. Everybody knows it's free conversation. Everybody knows that, um, you know, it's it's... It's a happy topic of, of discussion, um, because then it just becomes normality, yeah. And I think you know, for them, it is normal, isn't it? It's their everyday, they don't, like I said, they don't have anything to compare it to, yeah. So it's not really an issue.
4: I was thinking about the whole fact that uh, what happens if they want to meet, like, if we're sort of like, you want to meet the donor, and I think even then, I think it's probably a it's more in your mind, and you're more of a worry on the outset. But by the time they're eighteen, you think, "Well, I've raised them by mm. now." Mm. So we've got the mother, the father bond with um, mm. the child. You, the, I, I kind of I'd like to think the threat wouldn't be there. Yeah, it's when you when that hasn't established yet. It mm. must be more of a because then you just yeah well, they'll help you. Uh, we'll go and find her. Yeah. And, I think and it'd, be, it'd be it'd be nice for I think in that position you might just be in a situation where you just go to thank you for what you've done for our family really more than feel like a threat.
5: Yeah, definitely. And and the, you know that was one of the things that that Becky was saying that she feels like the longer that they speak about it as a family, the more of a just a standard topic of conversation yeah. it becomes. The more comfortable she is yeah. with speaking about it, and. I definitely felt like with our donor that we've selected, one of the big parts for me, one of the big reasons I felt really drawn to her was her letter, and I just found that that really connected with me, and I felt like if we were fortunate enough that it did work, this is somebody that I would welcome into be part be be met part of our family because they just seem like a really genuine person, which I'm sure most donors are, because they're obviously doing it to help. Um, And I just felt that that connection was, was really important. So, yes, a very beneficial conversation with Becky. And it, you know, I really hope, and I'm really pleased that it gave you that excitement around the potential family that we may get from this. And um, yeah, it was lovely to hear all about how much joy the children bring her. And yeah,
4: I think that was it.
5: You know, it's 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 that kind of acknowledgement that actually the donor bit, like I said, is minimal yeah. really to how complete they are as a little family. Yeah. So, yeah. So thank you so much for your time, Becky. It was really yeah, really you. lovely to chat. And uh, yes, I have been hounding the clinic. And uh, I'm hoping that they're going to come back to me soon because they're now they've been uh, they've been allowed to start treatment. Treatment started on the first of June, so fingers crossed. We'll have some news for you on that soon. But until then, take care of yourselves. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Bye.
4: Bye.
1: Planning for your next trip.
6: So, when are you going to have kids? A casual interrogation. So, when are you going to have kids? Being asked this for the thousandth time, my heart deflates with, what, sadness? Frustration? Boredom? This person isn't ready for an honest answer to their question. They don't want to hear about the years of waiting and waiting and waiting. About the good news, the bad news and, most common of all, the no news. They aren't prepared to know about the blood tests, sperm samples, internal examinations, the medication, the injections and how many people have taken a look at my now no longer private privates. This person wouldn't put me on the spot like this if they understood the battles I have with anxiety, fear and guilt or how the life I long for is becoming harder and harder to hold on to. They wouldn't ask me if they knew that I feel like a failure, excluded from a motherhood club which year after year welcomes more of my friends. I can't blame this person for not realising the financial, physical and emotional cost of our crippling infertility because to them, conception looks like this and not like this. Perhaps if they knew, they'd jump in with well-intentioned but unsolicited advice. Or perhaps they would just be too embarrassed to talk about it. Like I said, this person isn't ready for an honest answer to their question.
3: Anna we've just heard the most beautiful recording there from your book. Um, it's such a pleasure to have you on.
6: Thank you very much. Thank you for, for inviting me.
3: Before we start talking about what we're here to talk about, which is kind of creativity and and infertility, um, as you know, we, we ask everybody who comes on, tell us about your journey.
6: Yeah, um, well, it started quite a long time ago. Um, so... We, everybody has that same start to their story. Um, yeah. We had just recently turned 30 when we thought that we were being really ahead of the game and starting to right. try for a family. And now we're like not very far off 40. And uh, we we do have a one-year-old daughter and, or oh, she's one in a few weeks. Um, but it wasn't a very straightforward journey. So it never mm. is. Um, yeah. And we had we ended up having four rounds of ixie um across a really long space of time i realize now uh-huh. i don't think i did realize that at the time but that that sort of spanned 2015 to like early 2015 to 2017 and now i realize lots of people have that many rounds in like a year easily
4: yeah um, mm-hmm.
6: Um, and then we thought that was the end of the road for us and then we were made this incredible offer of uh, using a donor egg Um, actually that part of the story is a a bit more complicated than that but we did end up using a donor egg and now we have a daughter so we sort of ended up somewhere that we didn't think we would be um, but very happy to be
0: and
3: um, and can we talk about that a little bit like you're probably the first guest we've ever had on who's had
6: used a known donor yeah i've never met anyone who's used a known donor so um
3: so how did that come about
6: well we had um we'd probably gone through close to about 6 years worth of fertility tests and different uh-huh. rounds of treatment and had got to a place where we felt that we couldn't carry on we didn't have it in us to carry on any any further so yeah. we had decided that 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 was mm-hmm. going to be it for us um and we didn't really get anywhere in terms of healing in regards to that in mm-hmm. the in in the months I suppose that we thought that was the position that we were in um before um some friends of ours actually a, a cousin of mine was the one to start the conversation and then ultimately some friends of ours um continued it with us and they said as a family here, here's the offer um and talk to your doctors and what do you what do you need do you need a sperm donation or do you need an egg donation and come back to us and tell us what you want and we wow yeah it was really amazing um and the timing was great because well i mean it wasn't it wasn't great because my husband vinny had been really struggling with finding a way to begin that process of moving along and we found there was a lot of yeah. stuff out there that was aimed at me and nothing that was aimed at him and he'd actually made an appointment mm. to talk to a yeah. counselor no. we were uh, under guys at the time and he'd made an appointment to see a counselor and that appointment was the following week so we ended up hijacking that appointment and saying oh this has happened and what what do we do now um and um they basically put us back into the consultation process and it was really interesting listening to Liz and Nick talk about this and saying um that you think you know everything and then you realize Uh you know like there's this entire world that that you just didn't have a clue about so um yeah that was that really resonated with me listening to them talk about that um realization that you're newbies again um but they yeah. said <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, yeah yeah they said that we could explore both routes to a point but that if we had the offer of an egg donor that that would be the one they would advise
2: I was going to say did you have a diagnosis as to why um no the never. efforts previously hadn't worked to it, it, it help you choose which way to go because I know as you say, Liz and Nick were deciding, do we need both sperm and egg? Yeah, um,
6: well, you we were in the, a very similar position to them. Um, we we didn't really have very much um, knowledge about why things were a problem. We knew there was some fragmentation of the embryos, um, but we didn't know why. Um, sperm test results were OK. Um, my egg reserve was OK, but we just didn't seem very compatible. And we made, I mean, I, I nearly hyper-stimulated on an like more than one occasion and we made loads of embryos like upwards of 50 embryos but we never even had anything that was of freezable wow. quality so wow. we just we just weren't really a good fit oh, yeah that's So I mean, the first round that oh we God. had we uh they collected 24 eggs oh mate and yeah that was painful yeah i can imagine and they <laughs> they create and then from that there were 18 embryos and on transfer day when we turned up thinking this is gonna be amazing we're gonna like fill up their freezer we've got a football team (laughs) yeah well we just definitely thought oh this is it we've obviously been like just doing (laughs) something wrong up to now um and then when we got there they were like okay we've got this one we can put back but we're not keeping anything else and we were stunned to to have gone from 18 to one essentially um and then with slightly fewer numbers, that was essentially the same story every time. Right. So it, had, it did get to a point where somebody was brave enough to say to us, you can't keep doing the same thing in the same way and expecting it to be different.
2: Hence the donor conversation.
6: Yeah. It's not one we would have started, but we were really grateful to hear it. What, what is your relationship with the donor
3: now? Does she, I mean, how do you, or how are you planning to explain that to, to your daughter?
6: Well our intention has always been that, a, that a if chi- any child of ours would ever like they would never remember being told that it's just going to be something that they know something that is just a part of their story everybody in our family knows all of our friends know but not everybody knows who the donor is mm. so that mm-hmm. part is private um, but the actual kind of process that we've been to, through, we'd been through so much that I think it was going to be really obvious to people that something yeah. had changed. So we just aren't the sort of people that would be able to cope with it being a secret. Uh, so, yeah, so we that was one of the reasons that we had stepped away from the idea of using an unknown donor because we felt that we couldn't... We we really struggled with the idea that we wouldn't know more about that person, but also that we wouldn't be able to bring them into our lives as well. Mm. And um, I've I appreciate that's not the the normal reaction to this situation, um, and lots of people definitely don't feel like that, uh, but it is how we felt. So we came to the conclusion when we were discussing all of our different options that we were comfortable with the idea of using a donor that we know but that we weren't comfortable with the idea of asking anybody to do that for us Uh so we didn't think it would happen but it did it's incredible it's amazing really incredible I think about it every day not not in a negative way at all Mm, like it blows my mind Mm, no it's incredible
2: and so so tell us about the book how did it come about
6: well that came about um when I uh, I shortly after our first failed round um, it became really obvious that I wasn't coping very well with the job that I was doing at the time which it wasn't just the job I was teaching full time in a big comprehensive school and uh, it was really my job was really really busy and like teaching has so many merits but one of the things it's very much about is other people so I spent my professional life just totally absorbed in other people's stuff and then my private life was just 100% fertility stuff and I just felt that I I had nothing else to talk about and i lost sight of who I was completely Mm. and um we made the what now seems like a bananas decision for me to just have my noticing and see what came next and Really quickly realized that I needed more structure in my life than that, and after doing a few other things, I, I ended up on a master's course in communication design, and the final part of that was uh, to produce something that we basically wrote our own brief for, wow. and yeah, it was great. It, it was quite challenging because it meant that I I only had myself to blame if it was. <sighs> a problem. And I'd been through some counselling um, up to that point where the counsellor had told me that I was very poor at using emotional vocabulary. And I could see that she meant that as a criticism. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, she, thought, she thought that was a weakness. Uh, and I probably would agree with her. Um, and I thought maybe this is uh, some, like a way that I could challenge that. Um, uh-huh. So I wanted to do something around the language and vocabulary of fertility, mm. and and that's and that's really where it all began.
2: It's a it's a deep mine to to plough through, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I don't know. If, I
6: don't
2: know yeah. what I
3: would do if somebody told me to write my own brief. I'd be like, but I could do anything.
6: Yeah, it was. A, it could be. Can be a bit kind of. Overwhelming. Yeah, absolutely. At, at the time, I spent quite a lot of time talking. I was seeing a counselor at the time, a hypno counselor who was amazing, and f- like specifically for fertility. And I spoke to her about the potential conflict of researching and making work around the subject whilst we were going through a round. Because by this point, we were heading into our fourth round, mm. which we knew would be our last round.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: Oh, God. And eventually, I felt that one of the things I'd consistently failed to do, uh, particularly while I was working, was to give myself any thinking space. So I was processing the doing and the actions of what was going on all of the time um, and always looking at, what you know, when's this appointment and uh, when have I got to collect this medication and blah, 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 and never really thinking about how is this impacting me, how do I feel about it? So, going through this process forced that upon me a bit, which looking back was hugely beneficial i think um, so
2: many people are the same right i I think you just you just kind of blindly go on to the next thing and then the next thing and the next thing without really taking that time
6: i think it's i think it's hard when you when you have like a busy life and we, you know we can be a bit stiff upper lip about things and you think well you know I've just got to get on with things and you feel like you're being indulgent mm. by checking in with yourself in that way
3: other people have it worse
6: yeah yeah definitely and you know that's always true that's always true but it's not much consolation exactly
3: it <laughs> doesn't help you much and no. um, I mean I, I want to kind of distro- describe the book now so I'm going to do some broadcasting some use some broadcast skills so it starts off in kind of in black and white and it's it's kind of a wedding. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah, that was a
6: yeah. true moment, actually.
3: Oh, and it's some people kind of come over to you and ask you the question and then it kind of bursts into glorious Technicolor and uses toys, children's toys as a metaphor to kind of explain what you're going through. It's also I haven't seen an, an IRL copy, but it's it's a pop up book, right? That's
6: right. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So it's kind of very childlike. Um, what was the thinking behind that?
6: Initially I had so the script was really easy to write. It was a bit of a stream of consciousness and then I had to work out how to make the visuals link and I had this kind of these disparate images that didn't really fit together and it was during a a, a crit at university that somebody pointed out that there were a few different pages that came back to this idea of the toys. And if I made that more of a consistent theme through the whole thing, that that we could basically create this shift between the thinking and the feeling pages and then the, the black and white, boring, monotonous re- reality mm. of the situation. That's
2: incredible. And it's quite, it's quite jarring, I suppose, because you've got those playful images and then the story is obviously, emotional and difficult and I think it's it's really powerful
6: yeah when we we had the exhibition at the end of the MA and everything went on display and they had to put a sticker underneath it that said basically said yeah this looks like a children's book uh, but it's not for children yeah. especially um, one pa- particular page <laughs> definitely, definitely
2: um, <laughs> yeah <yes. poem. laughs>
6: Is, there is a double page spread that is very much a double page spread, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was uh, and and it was it was really interesting because in one of the crits that we had, uh, there was this, another student. Most of the students were in their mid twenties, so none of this was uh-huh. stuff that they'd really given much mm. thought to previously. And there was one student who really objected to that page, the the kind of investigation leg spread page, and she said oh, i just i just really like it really makes me feel uncomfortable oh, no shit and one of the other students <laughs> well, yeah one of the other students interjected and said like if it makes you feel uncomfortable to look at that in a as a drawing in a book just picture what it's like to be on the bed
2: wow.
6: and um i was really grateful that she said that cuz i i thought it it made me doubt myself for a mm. moment and then i thought no this is This is what... It needs to be like that. It needs to be confrontational because it is confrontational. 100%. And it was amazing when it went on display to see... um, Well, firstly, I think my own reaction to it because the first time someone that I didn't know was standing and reading it, I remember kind of going and finding one of my really good friends and saying to him, oh, because it's written in the first person, and I said to him, oh, Matt, like like they're going to think it's like me they're going to think it's an autobiography and he just sort of put his hands on my shoulders and he said it is about you it is an autobiography and I was like fuck <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean <laughs> to do that and it, it yeah it's so it, I hadn't set out to make it as personal as I did and I always hadn't really registered that it was but it was really interesting to see the different ways that people responded to it and mm. the and uh, people, some people did find it really challenging and definitely didn't know what to say to me afterwards, um, but some people found it quite cathartic, I think.
2: How did it make you feel being able to kind of put it out there and you're so exposed, in a sense? Did it Was it re- a relief to you to have it
3: out there?
6: Not in that first moment, I think. I think in that first instance, it had been quite a slog to get it finished on time and... I I think when it first went on display I hadn't had enough distance from it to be able to to really see it for what it is but now you know it's I finished it a few years ago now so I can look at it and think oh yeah like that it it feels like it it told a story for me but it also did a job of of processing and also challenging some of the language that I use uh, last year the Macmillan um, Trust published a report into the kind of language that gets used um, in relation to talking about cancer and cancer survival mm. and the language being very focused around fighting and battles and journeys and yeah. it's really similar in content to a piece of research that I read from America when I was doing my research for this that was based around infertility mm. um and the the kind of language that patients described being used um and it and it was it's kind of interesting to see that challenge of that language because the millen report was suggesting that we shouldn't be using language like that um and the infertility report was just really observing that, that yeah. that's the language but i i do think it's something that we ought to challenge
3: did i mean I, I kind of really understand what you what you mean when you say you felt kind of strange about like putting such personal experiences out into the ether for other people to to discover i think we've both every now and then we'll meet somebody who's listened and we'll they'll kind of say something that suggests that they know something quite personal about us and it kind of freaks us out right like freaks us out in a nice way like obviously we're doing it for a reason but it's yeah, it's a very strange <laughs> feeling to know that other people are out there like listening to your experiences and your thoughts and your feelings. It's risk
6: taking, isn't it? I think any time you create something yeah. that is as personal as this, you expose yourself to the positive elements of that which is I've met so many amazing people as a result of having made this book and had conversations that I would have never mm-hmm. had otherwise. And um, it. I feel that it's helped a lot of my friends and family to understand a little bit more about what's going on. But the flip side of that is when yeah. you have people that are close to you that, um, I, I, when it was first finished, I, I can remember, like, one person in particular that I'm really close to um, reading it in my house. And I could never be in the room while that happened. I used to go kind of busy myself somewhere else. <laughs> and then I'd sort of arrive back and usually, nine times out of mm. ten, whoever it was yeah. that had a look at it would, you know, come and give me a hug and say, oh, well done, well done for finishing it or whatever. And this person just... It was obviously too much for them to deal with and they just carried on conversation as normal like nothing had ever happened and I found that really painful um so so and I think that's where the risk comes from because you put yourself out there and you hope that Mm. somebody's going to catch you when you fall and and if they just leave you to face plant like it's yeah it stings but Not to put anyone off doing something along those lines.
3: (laughs) I mean, going back to you mentioned language there a little bit um, and going back to the the language side of things, the book's subtitled A Casual Interrogation, which I think is beautiful. Um, Do you feel like if people hadn't been quite as brutal when they were talking to you, that you might not have been so kind of inspired to channel your misery into or your experiences into creativity like that?
6: Yeah, possibly. Although I think that there's another end to that as well. The, the So you get that that type of person, if you like, that, you know, complete stranger on the bus that will tell you, well, this is another true story, that will tell you that, you know, you're getting on a bit and you probably ought to try and freeze your eggs. Ooh, yeah. oh Thanks, nice. lady. Nice. <laughs> I don't, I, now, I was only about 26 when that happened, and now I think maybe she was from the future or something. <sighs> do she knew. But <laughs> maybe she knew something I didn't but um so you have those people that are really in your face about it um but then I I also found it quite hard to um deal with the conversations with the people that were desperately trying to avoid it and I had lots of friends that would say things like um, oh, you know, you can always talk about it if you want to, you just tell me. But sometimes I couldn't bring it up. I just couldn't find the words to bring it up. If someone else started the conversation, I could happily carry it on. But but again, only if it was at the right place, the right time, the right place. So so essentially, um, your friends and family can't win and they're, <laughs> they really they're going to get it wrong. Yeah,
3: <laughs> Bless so. them. They, they <laughs> do try
6: as well, a lot of them. Some of them don't
3: but most of them try.
6: yeah I think the people that don't try are people that are generally awkward about conversations that resemble anything emotional whatever the subject matter is
2: yeah absolutely yeah, absolutely so so what happened once you published the book obviously and then it was a few years later that you you got pregnant right
6: yeah so after well the book wasn't really published as such do you want me to I'll just start that again because I think next door's dogs are going mad, and Nice. Okay. That's almost Pets. definitely going to be picked up on there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bloody animals. <laughs> More fur babies, actually. Oh, on, the mic's right down. Okay, I think that we're good there. Um, yeah, so the book wasn't exactly published. It, there is just one proper copy of it as a pop-up book i initially thought i was going to make a few but hand making a pop-up book takes a really long time and after i did the first one i thought i think one's enough (laughs) um so there is just one copy of the actual book although i did tweak it um digitally to be able to make an online copy which is which should be the one that you've seen um yeah and then after that, I um, I started a new job. I went back into teaching part-time this time so that I could have a little bit more of a balance um, between my own making and the students' making. And then I started thinking, what would I like to do for a new project? And I became really obsessed with the Tudor Wives and this idea of how, as a nation, our attitudes towards fertility have mm. been shaped a bit by Henry VIII and I'm not a historian I don't you know I I would really like to explore this on an an even deeper level Um, but really what I was looking at was this idea that from before we are old enough to remember we kind of know this story of Henry VIII Mm. which is essentially big powerful man marries a woman who fails to give him a child or more specifically a son a son Big powerful man divorces or or beheads the mm-hmm. woman, marries somebody else, goes through the same process, and and it, and it this goes around in circles. And then as children, we are like given this impression that uh, women are solely responsible for the o- offspring situation,
3: yeah.
2: and yeah.
6: that it's something punishable, like not yeah. being a child raising is is um, punishable. So we became quite obsessed with that. And then I looked. I started drawing all these really awful like horrific images of giant babies like massacring Tudor wives apart and it all became really dark and it was just as we were beginning our donor round and I had a conversation with one of my uh a couple of my really good friends that that are illustrators as well and they were like yeah you need to you need to back off a bit. This is—I'm just... I'm not sure this is the right. <laughs> Can you right draw some rainbows
2: right or I don't know <laughs> yeah. some marshmallows? Uh,
6: yeah, well, I mean they were they. When I see them now, I like come come across the some of the roughs um, every now and then when I'm looking at stuff on my iPad and I think, oh no, that was just awful, um, and it wasn't cathartic. It was it was too negative for for what I needed at the time. So I changed that completely and started looking at how. Catherine of Aragon had her personal symbol was the pomegranate from Spain and obviously she was yeah. Spanish but also the pomegranate was uh, an ancient symbol for fertility mm-hmm. and I I think that's haunting and you know you can go around Hampton Court now and there are still all these stone pomegranates carved into the place and it was such a you know, huge thing for her and you think all these women with relative power and wealth and zero control over their lives and the outcome of it
3: oh that's incredible i'm halfway through um the new hillary mantel oh and
6: jealous
3: it uh it's, it's actually much two. harder to read than the last two i i don't know if it's because oh, i really? i just find it harder to read but there's so, like there's a lot of kind of casual talk about like miscarriages and stuff oh, which of right. course is, is exactly what will have what will have taken place but it's quite like oh quite Mm. eyebrow raising um so you're an art teacher what do you tell your students about taking inspiration from adversity
6: well interestingly we've been talking about that recently and a lot we've been doing some work on challenge and adversity and trying to um be resilient and looking at different public figures that have done that um I think it I think it's the most natural thing in the world for a child to channel their emotions Next. through their art and like I work mostly with teenagers Paint it black. Mm-hmm. and you know that's all they want to do in their art is channel channel their emotions yeah and like <laughs> something happens to us yeah definitely and you know that they just think well of, of course I would do that do you not listen to the lyrics of the music I listen to uh-huh. um, but something happens to us as we get older and we start thinking that we 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 are a creative person or we are not a creative person and i hear so many adults say to me i couldn't do something like that because i can't draw and i you know i think well i can't sing but that doesn't stop me from singing i just wouldn't get up on stage and do it and i think you know whether i'm talking to my students or whether i'm talking to you know a friend or someone that i meet through conversations like this i my my first bit of advice would be to say that your target audience needs to be yourself you need to put any worries about what anyone else would think of what you make on a complete back burner and if you never show it to anyone that's absolutely fine but if equally if you finish it and you think wow like I've made something that someone else might connect with then you know get it out there
2: amazing um do you think you'll make any more art about fertility
6: Yes, I think I think almost definitely I've I've got an idea for a, a group piece which I think would be nice, um, an embroidery piece that I like the idea of sharing, um, and yeah, I think um, th- this whole like TTC experience, is, if you choose to engage with the community, is such a collective thing, and that. I wasn't aware of um, any anything like this until quite late on in our journey and I think that knowing about it all sooner I mean maybe it just didn't exist sooner than that I'm not not really sure I think a lot of the Instagram accounts that are really prominent now are relatively new oh. um but I think to embrace with that it, uh, to embrace that is like such an opportunity
2: yeah definitely helped us
3: okay well Anna it's it's been lovely to have you on. Uh, final question. Um, and that is, what's your advice to those who who do feel that they want to create something from this, but they just they don't have any idea where to start? I mean, I, I actually think your, your mention of Instagram is a really good point. Like, people who have Instagram accounts by their very nature being creative.
6: Yeah, I think so. I think the thing with Instagram is that you can't just post text. You've got to think, we have got to make that visual connection. And I think that's a good place to start, is just collecting like images and like not even necessarily with any set intention but just collecting things that make you um feel like I don't know it depends on what you're you you're trying to look for in your outcome but like if you want to say that you want to find some sort of peace and serenity that you collect those kind of images and then look at them as a collective and say right what's the common thread here and w- what am I consistently drawn to and start with that i think and also just to not be afraid cool well thanks so much for coming on it's it's so
3: ridiculously overdue as well yeah <laughs> we've oh, been
2: badgering you. you for a while
6: <laughs> <laughs> oh it's been really nice to talk yeah. to you and yeah nice to put myself in that headspace again of thinking about the purpose and the reason that i do what i do and You
3: know, stop making excuses and start the new (laughs) post. Now it's time for IVF. What the f? We're talking about sleep. We are.
2: We are. Um, How do? How well do you sleep normally?
3: Uh, Well, I sleep very well, thank you. Unless I'm worried about something, in which case I do not sleep at all. It's it's the first thing to go when I'm like vaguely anxious. Mm,
2: yeah I've definitely been awake at the small hours when I've been worried about something mainly work I don't think um I ever had insomnia due to infertility though I don't think it was like when I was going through that I couldn't sleep so it's usually work related with me
3: yeah work is a big thing there have been a huge number of studies that have been quite well publicized talking about sleep and how important it is to everything from your cell reproduction to your mental health. Um, Like there was one study a while ago and I remember reading about it and the scientists involved got so freaked out by how important sleep was that they all got insomnia
2: oh god <laughs> <laughs> which made me
3: laugh so much um, obviously not for them that's no, not funny for them oh
2: man but they, there's a lot of scaremongering in the sleep department though as well because i've seen yeah. there's links to all sorts of diseases um lack of sleep there is and um i actually spoke to a um i did an article about it randomly and spoke to a counsellor who was really pissed off about the scaremongering that kind of sleep people do about the importance she said that it you know it doesn't help to, yeah. to scare people with, with what's going to happen to you if you don't sleep properly, obviously, because it's not going to help you sleep, is it?
3: Well, it's the, it's the school of just relax, isn't it? I mean, sleep is yeah. the ultimate relaxation. So if you can't, if people are telling you to go to sleep, like You're that's the one thing you then can't do. Yeah. So we, we decided to ask Professor Tim, like what effect does sleep have on fertility? And here's what he had to say.
1: So I think it's fair to say that most of us aren't getting enough sleep for all sorts of different reasons, the stresses and strains of daily living. I think it's fair to say that um, a lack of sleep and tiredness is not going to stop fertility treatments working. Being tired probably will mean that people don't cope as well maybe with um, how they're feeling during a treatment cycle, in particular, if the treatment cycle is unsuccessful. In terms of natural conception, if people are feeling very tired due to lack of sleep, then understandably that could affect the frequency of intercourse and therefore absolutely could affect the chance of natural conception. But a lack of sleep and feeling tired is not going to stop an embryo implanting, the same as the situation for during treatment. So overall I'd be reassuring, as long as people are still obviously trying enough times per week to actually have a natural conception.
3: And that's the end of the show guys hope you enjoyed the show yes um next week we are speaking to regina townsend another american another
2: american we just can't help ourselves she um is started a blog called broken brown egg a number of years ago and she is very vocal about um fertility particularly in the black
3: community and um she is an all-around excellent woman also, she's a librarian, which I think is probably the coolest job in the whole world. It's quite sexy, isn't it? Yeah. Like, and I'm like a spoiler alert, but while we were talking to her, there was a bird tweeting in the background, and it's so cute. Like, it sounds like she's basically Snow White.
2: Well, it's going to be a good one. So tune into that, guys. And until then, stay safe. We love you. Have a great time. Keep shagging. And see you, next, see week. you next week. <laughs> Bye. Bye.